0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have James Roger Fleming on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Fixing the Sky, The Checkered History of Weather... Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm happy to say we have James Roger Fleming on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Fixing the Sky The Checkered History of Weather and Climate Control. In the summer of 2008, the Chinese were very worried about the rain, or rather, too much rain. They were hosting the Olympics. And they wanted to have clear skies because clear skies would show that the Chinese had arrived. So they employed a rather sizable army of people arrayed with artillery pieces and rockets to seed the clouds around Beijing. They spent a small fortune on this. According to most experts, it did absolutely nothing. They were not the first to try this, as James Fleming tells us in Fixing the Sky. Actually, people have always dreamed about altering the weather, and they have never succeeded in doing so. But a lot of money has changed hands in the process. And in fact, as James shows, a lot of money is still changing hands as there is an entirely new generation of weather makers and controllers who are trying to convince our government and others that they can somehow, by a technological fix, halt global warming. This makes for some very interesting and timely reading. So I encourage you to pick this book up. I enjoyed talking to James today. And without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, Jim. Hi, Marshall. How are you today?
1: Just great. It's a sunny day here in Maine, and I'm uh, so happy to be on the uh, interview with you. Well, that's great. Well, thank
0: you for being on the show. I should tell our listeners that we have James Roger Fleming on the show, and we'll be discussing his terrific new book, Fixing the Sky, the checkered history of weather and climate control. I can tell you, Jim, that before I read this book, I thought that cloud seeding worked. <laughs> I really did. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, it's Part of the reason it has to do with... I do Russian studies, and all Russians are convinced that the Communist Party could control the weather, and they, they would as say, are I, all Chinese. Yeah, that they was like <laughs> May Day never rained on May Day, and then you go and you look it up, and of course it rained on May Day a lot. And so I don't, <laughs> yeah. So I didn't. This book was a breath of fresh air for me, and also, you know, it really um, it taught me a lot of things that I thought I I thought I knew, but I, I didn't know. And so it was it was very uh, it was really uh, one of the most um, uh, I guess uh, pedagogically rich books for me that i've i 've read in doing this uh, podcast, so I want to thank you for writing it. Um, I want to begin. Well, thank in, you for uh, the nice uh, comments I, I, certainly, I, yeah.
1: I thought it was breaking new uh, wind as they say' yeah, breaking new, uh, <laughs>
0: yes so so and we 'll discuss why cloud seeding doesn 't work very well when the time comes. so but let 's begin the interview by having you say a few words about yourself that is kind of where you were born and where you went to school, how you became interested in history, and that sort of thing.
1: Oh, sure. Uh, I was born in Winbur, Pennsylvania, which is the s- inversion of the Burwind White Coal Company, which ran the town. So I came from Appalachia. Uh, I went to uh, Penn State University, studied astronomy. And uh, in my senior year, I got into the atmosphere. They have a great atmospheric science program, and I studied with some legendary people and went off to get a master's degree in atmospheric sciences from Colorado State which again was a very strong program. They got me putting clouds into a climate model, at least initially. It was before it was fashionable to do that. And then they they sent me to high-altitude training so I could fly in various instrumented aircraft programs. Um, one of the jobs was flying with the National Center for Atmospheric Research in their glider, where they would slip quietly into a cloud, a growing sort of cumulus cloud, and we'd spend most of the day inside of the whiteouts, circling in the cloud, taking samples and things, trying to be unobtrusive. But one night at our uh, motel, the police came over and said, you better come with us to the hangar, because someone had thrown a Molotov cocktail through the window and burned up the car glider, uh, thinking we were, st- quote, stealing their skywater. It was some local farmers mm-hmm. or farm boys that were trying to get even with us. So we had to take the glider and go back home and uh, end the project, but this was my first uh, indication that there was such violent uh, animosities about uh, about uh, perceived weather control. They thought we were stealing their, their water. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I flew on another project with an old World War II bomber where we only flew out of Seattle with the University of Washington when the weather was bad. And... Uh, <laughs> one day we came in after a long night flight, and I noticed the treetops were zipping by the window. And I was thinking, "Wow, we're a little bit low." And a downdraft pushed us into the top of these pine trees, mm. and we chopped off uh, the first meter of a of a pine tree. Mm-hmm. And it stuck in our particle collector. And I realized that one more meter lower, we we could have been tipped and crashed on the on the runway. So I, uh, this was in the se- early '70s, and I decided at that point to find a new. I would say, mode of engagement with the atmosphere <laughs> <laughs> that didn't require me to fly in the storms all the time. And so I, you know, I'd retooled. I retooled. I, I was going to get a Ph.D. in um, atmospheric science, but I wasn't all that good at math, and I thought others could do it better. But I had uh, a real uh, uh, attraction to the humanities, so I managed to, you know, work my way to uh, a position where I was competitive and attended... Uh, graduate school in history at Princeton University where I convinced my committee that I should uh, uh, work on this vast field of atmospheric science and uh, on our faculty we had Robert Darton at the time he's now the librarian at Harvard and uh, I decided to work in a Dartonian way backwards into the past and, and going beyond the horizon that I understood which was what I'd learned about atmospheric science into an era that I didn't understand and i found my i found myself studying these people stuffing chickens into a cannon and shooting them out of the cannon <laughs> to, uh, to gauge hurricane and tornado wind speeds and uh and this was published in the American Journal of Science. And I says, I really don't know why they're doing that. <laughs> so one of my first grad school papers was called The Great Chicken Massacre, <laughs> if you get the uh, analogy. Yes, yes, I do. <laughs> and I was off as a dedicated sort of Dartonian, going into fields that I knew nothing about to, to try to gain some historical insight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and so then you know, I became a historian. I spent a lot of time working on the history of meteorology, uh, 19th century America. History of Climate Ideas is another one of my books going back into the 18th century and then back into the near present. And then I did a biography of uh, Guy Stewart Callender, a fellow that reinvented or reconstituted the so-called anthropogenic greenhouse effect. So what I did was I I maintained my relationship between the atmospheric sciences and the historical field and uh, became a, a person that could... Uh, you know, preserve deniability in both areas.
0: <laughs>
1: if I'm at the atmospheric science meeting, I'm a pure historian, and at the history meetings, they often call on me to tell them about current global warming or something. So it's been a, it's been an interesting niche to occupy. There's not too many people doing this, and our group is small. But I claim one of my hobbies is building this community because I'd like to see more interpretive work done. And uh, like we have 500 biographies of Abraham Lincoln, I'd like to see more work that we could uh, discuss historiographically with the community. So we, we started a, a little – the American Meteorological Society started a – they have a $15,000 dissertation grant for a fellow at the, in the history departments. We've had about six or seven of those, and about five or six of them are on tenure track now in history departments. And there's been some nice other kinds of things we did by way of cross-pollination. We started an international commission on history of meteorology, which is part of uh, the International Union of History and Philosophy of Science. And our little group always does something uh, special at the big congresses. We go out together, we go to some site. We went to the Mexican uh, meteorological archives when we were in Mexico and we went to the Chinese Meteorological Agency when we were in China. And just last summer, we went to the Hungarian med office where they, were, they had a museum with, with uh, Russian hail rockets, uh, <laughs> rockets that were tipped with uh, potential little chemical agents in the nose cones. And the guy said, yeah, we, we sold all of these off. We just kept one. Some junk scrap dealer came by and asked if he could buy the whole lot. He says, then, then about six weeks later, we noticed that there had been a Russian... Uh, rocket barrage in Chechnya. <laughs> we went we <laughs> we wondered if they had retooled these rockets with with different ordnance on the head. So it w- it was really fun, and and we we actually have a motto. We call it uh, scholarship and friendship because the, the group is quite diverse. Some are more or less retired meteorologists, and some of them are historians. And so we decide that when we don't agree on scholarship, at least we can have a pint or something together. So. Okay. That's how I got here. And I've written I've written a number of things and I decided uh having seen cloud seeding firsthand, I would I I wrote a couple papers about it in the past, but when I got to the uh on sabbatical, I had a two year research leave, and I was down at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, DC, and I realized that this climate engineering was really breaking in a big way the conversation around town and internationally. So I thought what I would do is, is link my earlier studies of weather control to uh, proposals for climate control, and, and that's how the Fixing the Sky book came out. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, a lot of the book, the background of the book, then is the reinvigoration, I suppose you could say, of attempts to control the weather, with specific reference to global warming. Is that right?
1: Right. Well, once weather mod was sort of much, for, sort of proved not to work on a local and regional level. This is by the National Academy's 2003 report. Uh, Once it was proved not to work, then people decided to try it at a bigger level.
0: (laughs) So why don't we actually begin the story of humankind's attempt to um, control the weather? And I want to begin with a distinction uh, just to get this out of the way. Humans can change the atmosphere and the weather as a result, but they can't control it. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I like that way you put it. Uh, I, I sometimes say they can intervene in physical processes, but they can't control them. We can we can break up a cloud with with airplane propellers by flying through it, or we could uh, we can change the uh, the heating effect of a of a black paved surface, but we can't control what happens after that. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm, I see. In fact, so, there's
1: a historical story of this where uh, Kathleen Blodgett at General Electric in 1947 told the Nobel Prize winner, Irving Langmuir, she, he, she basically said, Irving, you can put your chemicals in a cloud and make it do things, but you can't predict what it's going to do downwind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I it know. really does have a historical uh, foundation for yeah. that opinion. Yeah,
0: because I, the, the, I think that's an important distinction because we don't want to say that, for example, global, global warming is not to some extent uh, the, the result of human activity because it is. It was an unintended consequence of human activity, though.
1: Right. Uh, that's a, uh, a a given that, that uh, humans are having a, an unknown and largely damaging effect on the climate by adding all of our human emissions. Uh-huh, yeah. And that's the starting point for a lot of geoengineering is actually kind of what I consider to be an overreaction to this, that there's two options, uh, at least in the previous presidential administration, the option of doing nothing was on the table, which I thought was immoral. And this option of what I almost consider doing too much is also now trying to get on the table. And I think there's some really big middle ground, some really robust things we can do, uh, largely socially and uh, with the contributions of the humanities. We could we can we can talk about some of the middle ground that I that I end the book with. Well,
0: God grant that's true. So uh, let's I say begin the story of uh, humankind's attempt to control the weather. This goes way back, doesn't it? I mean. Uh, it goes
1: back in history, yeah. yeah. There, there's uh, there's uh, rainmakers uh, in most uh, major cultures. Uh, there's uh, I start with a Greek myth of Phaeton who asks his dad, Helios, if he could uh, drive the sun chariot through the sky. And uh, in Greek myth, uh, Helios says, Phaeton, I really don't want you to do this. You're not experienced enough, but hold tight the reins and stay on the middle path, my son. And Phaeton is perceived as a lightweight by the horses and it goes completely awry and they go all over the sky, burn up parts of the world, and, and so Zeus shoots Phaeton out of the sky. He's known as one of the four disgracers of uh, Greek mythology. And so it's a tragedy, uh, but uh, recently a, a meteorologist from MIT proposed that we learn how to control climate. It's a semi-serious essay in Boston Magazine. And he, and, and he called the essay Phaeton's Rains, mm-hmm. and he said we should pick up these reins and learn how to steer and manage solar radiation. So mm-hmm. I thought that was completely wrongheaded and uh, opened the book in a way. Of, of, an early part of the book talks about this uh, perpetual myth of, uh, of control and overreaching kind of hubris that we could actually control the sky that way. Mm-hmm. And then, then the book ends with this thing I just mentioned, which was the, what I call the middle path, which is trying to get humanity on the middle path of mitigation, adaptation, and resilience without, um, without the heavy-handed engineering that we don't know how to control. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Let me, let me uh, actually move us uh, forward very rapidly then to the okay. 18th and 19th century. Uh, when would you say, and this is a tangential question but one that's relevant, I think, when would you say that people began to understand uh, what the atmosphere was made of, and in a general sense, how the weather worked?
1: Well, they seem to be slightly different questions because the the identification of the spring of the air and the chemicals in the air is very much a, a story of, that comes out of the scientific revolution. Mm-hmm. You know, does nature abhor a vacuum and what is in the top of those philosophical instruments called barometers and Boyle's air pump? And so you can you can do a nice uh, uh, study of the of the uh, period of ferments, uh, the, the rise of the mechanical philosophy, uh, by looking at, at at things that are very atmospheric and pneumatic. I guess you could say the chemistry of them too. The identification of various gases and uh, one of my favorites is uh, is uh, Van Helmont, who was a considered to be an alchemist, but he identified this. Property called wild spirit that was hidden in the in the wood and hidden in the tree in the hidden in the springs and carbonated beverages and 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 people today would call it carbon dioxide and so there there's a story of understanding what the atmosphere is that it has weight and that storms move from uh, typically west to east and things like that but the the behavior of the atmosphere uh, I, I documented this a little bit in, in another book that but uh, but the behavior of the atmosphere, theoretically, it dates really to the the, uh, in, in the, uh, the late colonial, early U.S. period, uh, where Ben Franklin is looking at the progress of storms, and then uh, there's the first U.S. national meteorologist, James Espy, is looking at heated updrafts that cool and condense their moisture and precipitate, and so we get a sort of a a great storm controversy going in the U.S. in the antebellum era which informs uh, Joseph Henry and the Smithsonian to try to sort of make a proto-weather bureau before there's a national weather service. So my story with cloud uh, manipulation starts with Espy about 1839 or so, where he proposes to enhance his heated updrafts by burning large woodlots to make more smoke and more heat. And he had a proposal to, to basically burn... A strip of woods all the way from Maine to Georgia along the Appalachians, and he said every Sunday night we could torch this thing and cause uh, storms to gather that would clear out the air. It would be good for health. It would be it would break up droughts. And uh, he wanted some funding to do it by the uh, sort of by the inch of rainfall. He wanted to get paid for it. So here's a guy. I call him sort of a deluded enthusiast who took a good theory, and it's still an established theory that heated air convex and things like that, but he took a good theory and he turned it into an untenable proposal for which he was roundly uh, mocked by the the general public and by the politicians Mm -hmm. and by his peer scientists too. Mm
0: -hmm. And so we never did burn Maine, I take it.
1: We well we burned it another way, <laughs> <Yeah>. more slowly. <laughs> yeah. We we turned it into potash and let the pigs run, but it was it was more of a gradual thing. Yeah. He wanted to do it dramatically every Sunday night, yeah. so you'd have overnight rains and get ready for Monday morning. Mm-hmm. But one of the one of his critics, right right in the, in the very 19, 1842, uh, there was a lady named Eliza Leslie wrote in the women's magazine, Goody's Magazine. She said, uh, "What if there could be a rain king who could do this?" And she cast her story a hundred years in the future, 1942, in which the weather could be controlled. Say in a place like Philadelphia, and she said that anybody that that wanted uh, that didn't want the rain but got it over the weekend would would think that um, that someone else had had their way. And so there was an immediate suspicion in her story about those that got what they wanted and those that didn't, rather than just hey, that's that's just a a bad weekend. And I think that conflict over uh, who gets to control the sky and who gets their way, either with rain or with temperature, is, is a big theme, in, not only in the book, but it's a continuing theme now uh, in, uh, in both weather and climate control. So I think there's more to be done on the issues of uh, conflict and, and, as they say, national security interests surrounding climate change, because it could lead to, to vast disagreements and even conflicts.
0: So then by the mid-19th century, people understood that uh, condensation was at least uh, a contributor to rainfall, that is these warm-up drops. When did the notion of uh, cloud seeding, and I mentioned cloud seeding and kind of want to focus on it because I think many of the listeners will be, as I was, under the mistaken impression that it works pretty well. So w- when, right. is, when is the idea of cloud seeding and what is cloud seeding? When, is it, when, is it, uh, when does it come into human consciousness?
1: Well, uh, cl- cloud seeding is uh, many things historically, as I detail in different stories in the book, uh, and it has a particular meaning today. So I think since your audience is largely historical, I'll work through a couple early examples of, of okay. adding a small amount, Like you add seed to a field, and a season later you have a vast and bountiful harvest. And so seeding is a, is a literal um, metaphor for putting a small amount of agent into the sky and getting a very large result out of it. Um, the earliest uh, an analogy I have to, uh, to seeding uh, with actual physical agents is uh, is in the 1920s, they wanted to clear fogs and make it rain by uh, using electrified sand dropped from airplanes. And by dropping a bin of sand spread out across a cloud, they thought they could make the cloud Behave as they will. Or e- even, there's a fellow in, in the Netherlands who said we could even make the, the north more sunny and the south more cloudy, and we could readjust the whole Earth's climate with a proper fleet of airplanes. So the idea that small agents could have large results comes to a, a modern turn where uh, the general electric scientists working around Irving Lamier. Uh, in the 1940s, they had worked on uh, making artificial um, smoke screens and also worked on aircraft icing for the military. And they turned their attention to how to make a cloud either clear out or precipitate using these chemicals. So one was uh, dry ice, just solid CO2, very cold. This was uh, von Schaefer's idea that you could make a cloud super cold and ice phase and the ice would release more energy when it forms ice and that allows the cloud to be a little more energetic and so you can make a little more rain or snow. Uh, The other agent was called silver iodide. This was developed by Bernie Vonnegut at General Electric. Bernie was Kurt Vonnegut's brother, older brother, and Kurt was on the staff at General Electric at the time doing publicity work and and writing. So there's a very interesting uh, nexus there of Two interesting discoveries about clouds, combined with kind of a literary turn, where 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 Vonnegut had, in one of his books, he says General Electric was science fiction. It was <laughs> it was always on the cutting edge of new techniques, and they were very enthusiastic that they might be able to um, uh, make the desert blossom and uh, control all adverse storms with their new technologies. The GE annual report. I think it's 1946, is very effusive about what this new technology might do. And the analog was slow neutrons, the seeding of a nuclear pile, a nuclear reaction with a few extra neutrons that would cascade to make a nuclear reaction or a nuclear explosion. So there's a very close analog between that and adding a few particles of. A silver iodide to a cloud and having it basically, quote, explode as they reported in their in their literature. So Langmuir and his gang, uh, Schaefer and Vonnegut, were cleared to do the Manhattan Project, but never did. They participated more in the smoke screen side of World War II. After the war, I think Langmuir in a way regretted that because of all the attention that went to the bomb scientists. So he wanted to turn a thundercloud into the equivalent of an A-bomb. They have about the same total amount of energy, and he wanted to basically weaponize or control these thunderstorms to do uh, the master's bidding. The GE lawyers quickly wanted to draw back, and they said, well, we we can't uh, support the liabilities that would come from downwind lawsuits. So they turned the program over to the Air Force, and so Langmuir and the Air Force in 1947 go out with their new chemicals to try to basically uh, do all sorts of things and, and generate new weapons. There's, there's top-secret programs to, uh, to load the clouds with uh, not just silver iodide, but with biological, radiological, chemical agents and have them trigger and precipitate a, a, on command. And if you think of the weather, basically the weather goes west to east. And So if you're in, the, in, in a eastern Germany, a eastern part of western Germany, thinking about a NATO... Defense posture. You've got the weather on your side going west to east across Eastern Europe, and they wanted to. They actually had scenarios of prevailing against the enemy not with their own bombs and and ordnance, but with their cloud seeding, socking in the enemy airports, or or stopping their tank columns with mud and and lightning strikes. And then the larger uh, energetics is the hurricane. So Langmuir got into talking about hurricanes as Multiple H bomb energy sources, and if you could control the hurricane or direct it against an enemy fleet, you wouldn't even have to say that you attacked them. You'd just say, "Oh my God, I'm sorry that that typhoon wiped out your fleet." You could you could have deni- deniability is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you you might be able to def- deflect typhoons or hurricanes from your own uh, naval operations. So this this was really really the the major theme was. Uh, was militarization in the 1940s and 50s, because it was assumed the Russians would get ahead of us if we didn't do a crash program in this. So a lot of my archives are in military sources, and the other major theme is in commercial sources as Western rainmakers tried to take the techniques out to the to the dryland farmers and promise them um, no rain, no pay, you know, kind of contracts.
0: Well, let's talk just a little bit and. I don't want to go into too great a detail but uh, they sort of um I guess I would call it the the, the moment in this. These guys at General Electric uh, did succeed in uh making a sort of earthbound clouds or maybe I should call them um, uh you know experimental clouds rain that is in the laboratory they could show someone how this might work on a large scale. Is that correct?
1: Right, sure. Vince Schaefer had an old GE freezer, like a cold box. And every time he had a visitor, he would take them up there and and build a little vapor cloud in the freezer and then add a little dry ice to turn it into uh, a precipitating or an ice phase cloud. And uh, so it's true. You you can actually do things in in a small space or a controlled space that are pretty exciting and indicative, but when you take it outside, I'll, kind of all bets are off. And it's, it's very similar to the ocean iron fertilization experiments that started in little bottles of ocean water by adding tiny amounts of iron as a nutrient and has have gone to hundreds of kilometer experiments out in the free ocean to companies that are saying, well, maybe we can commercialize the ocean fertilization and take carbon credits for it. So. Mm-hmm. The scaling up from understanding a bit of understanding to to widespread control is, is often done way too quickly with too much hype behind it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see.
0: And they also experimented with some interesting methods of delivery. I know that, and I was surprised to learn about this and did some reading on it. Um, I teach a class on military history here at Iowa, and I did not know that one of the uh, principal uses of, for example, today the... Um, Chinese artillery forces was to bombard the sky. Could you talk a little bit about the um, yeah. there
1: there's a there's one theme of cannonading runs through the whole book yeah. <laughs> the uh the the uh eighteen uh, the, well, the civil war seemed to indicate that it rained after great battles and there was this old theory it goes back to the Greeks that maybe the you know the gods are trying to purify the battlefield and and it, and and it just dis- the, ordinate, the, the cannonading in the Civil War had caused rains to fall. You know, after Gettysburg, there was a heck of a rainstorm as Lee made his way south. And, uh, and so this correlation got published by a few people, and it led to an experiment in which they took cannon and fireworks and, and all kinds of explosives out onto the Texas uh, panhandle and shot it off, and they kept, exp- they kept putting on their fireworks shows until it rained. And it turns out that they were down there in, in July and August, which is the typical rainy season. When I was writing the, that chapter, I noticed that it was it was July and August, I think, of 2009, and I saw great big thunderstorms coming across Texas at that time. And so it turns out that if you do your fireworks show day after day diligently, it will eventually rain. And then you, then they took credit for it. In fact, if we, if we talk long enough, it would probably rain and I would sit here. It would, yes. I don't know how long this interview will go, but if, it'll rain no matter what we do. So, so can, we General, get pay,
0: can we get paid for that? I, yeah, I, sure. We could take
1: credit for it. Yeah. So. But General Direnforth, uh, and supported by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, was out with his cannons in uh, 1891. And there was also hail cannons in, in Austria trying to break up the, the sky and, and let the hail go over the over the vineyards and there was also um, cannonading uh, ideas that, that run through delivering these chemicals into the sky in the Cold War and then as you mentioned the, the Chinese have 30,000 civilian artillerists who were mobilized for the um, Olympics to shoot all kinds of different chemicals drying agents moistening agents all kind of things to give you you know, the perfect conditions for the Olympics. But I think the best thing the Chinese did to purify their air around Beijing was to shut down some auto traffic during the <laughs> Olympics. And that had a much bigger effect than any of their cannons. Yeah, I mean, well, very... here's, here's what I'm looking at uh, from that dynamic is, imagine a, a scattered showers coming across China, and, and think of it like these green radar blobs. Some cities get showers and some get mist. And and it goes on, but now with every province having their artillery firing at every storm, there's a suspicion that other people are getting the rain that your province should have got, <laughs> and and so it, it does lead it, it it does lead to internal uh, disputes and and suspicion, and that's what's happening right now in in the provinces of China because mm-hmm. every every cannon shot is, is a success, of course, as they report it anyway, and. Uh, so that's the dynamic I'm looking at. Now, uh, there's another canon story in the book. It was uh, the sequel to Jules Verne's From the Earth to the Moon. And I guess my listeners are now thinking, wow, this, this stuff's all over the place. But there is a thematic here. And Jules Verne's Baltimore Gun Club wanted to shoot the Earth off its axis in the, in the sequel to the Earth to the Moon. And they wanted to melt the North Pole and uh, mine the coal that was under it. And so I, I just have – I had too much fun putting cannonading in as one of the thematics running up through the modern era. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the book is actually my first tragic comic history of weather yeah. control and climate control. It, it's really not heroic genre like a lot of history of science has been.
0: Yeah, no, I see exactly what you mean. But I, I should also say about gun shooting and things. like I grew up shooting guns, and it always makes you feel like you've done something when you shoot a gun, even if you haven't. It's just there's something about it that is it's complete. So if you shoot at something, you're you, you feel well satisfied. Like you can take your evening meal. So uh, I, I I suspect that's well. What the I, I have think. to add that
1: you know the the modern idea, uh, and this comes out in the later chapter of the book about climate control. But how do you control an out of the out of the uh, uh, you know a runaway sky? How do you stop a, a raging sky? Uh, now we have not only climate change, but we have global climate disruption. You know, we have raging bulls in the sky. So how do you stop that if you're an ex-military or military person? You shoot at it. Yeah. And so there, all the proposals that I've seen, or many of the heavy-handed proposals, come through military-type equipment. Uh, one was actual naval rifles loaded with sulfates shot up in the tropical atmosphere to this is called Paul Kritzen's uh, editorial in 2006 to make the sky more milky white and to and to reduce the sunbeams coming down because we had too much warming from from uh, carbon dioxide mm-hmm. and other other military equipment uh, high altitude balloons and and um, just the the idea of uh, using a uh, uh, military ordnance is still in play right now with the, uh, with the climate engineers. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, While we're on the topic of the military, I, I did uh, another thing I learned from your book, and I, and I did not know, even though I thought I was quite a student of the Second World War, was that uh, a technique to disperse fog was successfully um, designed and implemented. I don't know about successfully, you might put that in quotes given what it cost, but uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that program.
1: Right. The, the FIDO program run by the British uh, took literally thousands of gallons of petrol in trenches and burners around airfields air and lit the petrol on foggy nights. To, like your bathroom uh, mirror might fog up, you can clear it with a, with a, with a hair dryer, with a hair blower. And this is what I call a brute force method to force the air to be heated a few degrees... Which allows the fog to rise locally around the burners, and it kind of like the lighthouse of Alexandria, it, it provides a beacon for the returning bombers to find their airports on, in foggy England. So, from 1944 to 45, this so-called FIDO (Fog Intensive Dispersal of) I think was their acronym. This allowed uh, uh, Allied and British aviators to take off and land when the when the Germans were grounded. It, It made some difference in the Battle of the Bulge, but not necessarily a critical difference. And uh, it was uh, Churchill's priority to give the British Petroleum Warfare Department their allocation of gas to burn at airports uh, (laughs) uh, against the the need for the gas and the land invasion of Europe. So it was a very critical uh, decision, and and I think Churchill decided, well, Britain is uh, at risk of its own... Future survival, so we have to do something desperate. So they went into a crash program. It turns out that it's completely uneconomic after the war. That they tried it at Orly Airport. They tried. I think they had one of these things down at uh, LAX in Los Angeles. And the, the way they priced it out, it was several thousand dollars per passenger just to clear the fog with mm-hmm. these techniques. Yeah. So it was commercially a bust. And then these electronic avionics came in, where you could you could fly without instrument flying came in much more in 1945-46, yeah. so FIDO was very much a, a flash in the pan, uh, you know, a burst of gasoline flames that, that allowed the British to have a slight advantage, uh, and, and so like a checker, I say it's a checkered history, and in this case the checkerboard squares are, are, are more brighter, They're, there was actually a small success in weather control when they were facing this national crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. So,
0: I mean, I suppose the greatest success in weather control is um, heating and cooling a room. I don't know if we call that weather control, but it works nicely for us.
1: Oh, right. <laughs> the, the climate. Um, we're 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 toying with this notion of the climate near the ground, and people have always sought shelter. We, at some point,
0: way back, we mastered
1: fire. We we clothed ourselves with different kinds of different skins and textiles. And you know, even even I think the background of the of the word technology comes from techs text or textiles. And so, in, in closed spaces and heated rooms, and uh, now with air-conditioned home stadiums and with uh, a large uh, Mall of America or somewhere out there, um, we have very large air-conditioned spaces. Yeah. So large that they're energy-intensive and they put humans over against the sky that we we. we Gravel into these places, in the Sun Belt especially, trying to stay away from the the, uh, the outdoor uh, mm-hmm. weather and climate conditions. Yeah. Uh, when I was on leave, I was down in Washington, and I had blowing air conditioning in the, in the Reagan Center there with the Wilson Center. Yeah. And I found that I could conference, and I could research, and I could take notes, but I couldn't write my book till I got back here. Something about it, I had to be outdoors a little bit. I kind of sat under a tree here in Maine to write most of the manuscript. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think our society has uh, this uh, sheltering from the sky. Uh, there's a couple of good books on this, and in a way, turning your back against natural elements because the carrier air conditioning is just so so wonderful to so many people. Yeah.
0: I, th- I think one thing that people, at least I didn't understand until I started to look into it a number of years ago, I have a bit of a science background, but uh, you know, I was a history major in college. Um, I think people don't realize... Uh, how large the atmosphere is and how much, just to give an example, how much water a moderately-sized cloud holds.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They, they just don't have any conception of it.
1: it, it, it it's, a, it's actually astronomical. There's uh, what, What's the number? There, there's 10 to the 26th, astronomers say there's 10 to the twenty-six stars in the moon universe, and there's 10 to the 26th breaths of air in our atmosphere. This is a scientific notation, 26. Yeah. yeah. And there's 10 to the 26 molecules of different kind of gases in your lungs right now. And, and most of that's oxygen and nitrogen, but the rest of it's all these different trace elements and things. So there are astronomical numbers. And you, you mentioned the water content. We had the ice storm of 98 here in Maine, where the, the winds came up moisture-laden in in end January, and they dropped, for about five days, they dropped ice here so that the rime was about five inches thick and was knocking down trees and destroying people's decks and mm-hmm. things like that. And what, I remember one time with a group of school kids, we did a calculation not only of how heavy that ice would have been if it covered not just Maine, <laughs> most of Quebec, you know, five inches of ice over the area of Quebec, yeah. a gram per, per cubic centimeter, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then we did a calculation on how much energy it would take to melt that ice and then vaporize it back into, into a moisture. Yeah. And again, you end up with these exponents running out into the, uh, the hundreds of, of millions, you know, billions and billions, as Sagan would say. And so we, we really do underestimate the, the, the mass and the power of, of what nature is bringing when there's a widespread event like that, or the, the or the multiple H bomb energies of hurricanes and uh-huh. things like that. Yeah, yeah. No, it's
0: hard. It's hard to realize how energetic. The atmosphere and the things in it are, I, at least yeah. it, it is for me. It just it's 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 mind boggling every time I th- I think about it. But hold it, let's um uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, global warming for a second because I think it's something that will be on the minds of uh, our listeners. What are, if you could um, detail these? What are the current technological fixes that have been proposed? Could you summarize them very briefly?
1: Right, they they basically tend to fall into two categories. One is euphemistically called solar radiation management, cutting off sunbeams. If the gases in our atmosphere heat up the planet too much in the long-wave sense of things, then engineers are proposing to cut off some short-wave heating uh, by um, making um, clouds artificially brighter or by putting up space mirrors in orbit. Or by shooting these cannons full of sulfates or nanoparticles that make the blue sky kind of milky white and scatter the sunlight before it gets down into the system. This is this is a I went to a NASA conference as the only historian with a group of sort of Rube Goldberg <laughs> speculators, you know, and and I gave them this history. I gave them a, 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 before I wrote the book, I gave them a basic history of weather mod and I heard one of them say, gee, that sounds sort of like a checkered history of eugenics. We better distance ourselves from that weather mod history. But the, the basic brute force ideas was to cut off sunbeams through solar radiation management. And uh, again, we were we were at NASA at the, one of their branch ca- campuses, and it was a warm autumn day. We had the doors open, and, and one of the conference organizers said, uh, gee, I'm really sorry. We're having trouble managing the temperature of the room today. It was just so ironic because we were in a meeting to manage the temperature of the planet. So this, was,
0: this is sort of sunscreen for the Earth, correct? Sunscreen. That was yeah. Edward
1: Teller's phrase. Yeah, there was The Earth needs a sunscreen. Sunscreen. Yeah, it would deflect the sunlight. And many of his protégés were at this meeting, former Lawrence Livermore types, who thought out of the box in Star Wars sort of brilliant pebbles mode, that, gee, we could just take the Earth and uh, on the back of an envelope calculate how many sunbeams we need to cut off and this will cool the planet, save the polar bears, restore the polar ice kind of Uh thing. And it was very, very, very uh, naive, very, very simplistic atmospheric science, especially if you study people like Ed Lorenz and his chaotic responses to uh, perturbation kind of stuff, you know, the the chaos theory. Uh, The other... The other technique is called variously um carbon dioxide removal, sucking CO two out of the air and putting it somewhere. The Columbia has a proposal to uh kind of forest the world with these artificial trees that are better than natural trees. And natural trees give you sort of habitat and nuts and, and and ambiance and things, but the artificial trees are more like I call them inverse tailpipes. They suck CO2 out of the air and then they pump it somewhere. You have to purify it, uh, pump it underground, or store it somewhere for a long time. So almost like nuclear waste, you have to keep it away from people because it is uh, toxic. CO2 is poisonous. There are blankets, you know, you can't breathe it. And so the artificial tree people have a very tough sale because it's extremely expensive. It's extremely non-thermodynamic. You know, you you have to compress CO2 and pump it somewhere. And it really would end up adding about 30% to the oil uh, and uh, energy companies' infrastructure to put it into practice. And so it doesn't seem very likely that you will take parts per million of CO2 out of the air by having giant skyscraper-like filters standing over the landscape as artificial trees. Uh, the other the other more reasonable thing, which is actually being done at, at certain test locations, is uh what, what's called carbon capture and sequestration. In the North Sea oil fields they're they're capping some of their wells and getting some of the stack gases and capturing them right away when they first come up, not when they disperse to the free atmosphere. And so uh that's that's I don't think that's really geoengineering. That's more like engineering. At a particular plant to do the stack gases and the scrubbing and it's still a challenge to find some place to store all this stuff that you're collecting so it seems the best the best policy for me is always efficiency efficiency and efficiency efficiency in your home efficiency in your transportation and efficiency in your manufacturing stream and and then you can start to think about some of the other things but well, we haven't we haven't exploited efficiency large enough yet. Mm-hmm.
0: So this would be reducing the amount of uh, CO2 and methane and so on and so forth that we release into the atmosphere. When you speak of efficiency, yeah, yeah.
1: E- efficient and uh, and, and uh, innovative uh, alternative energies or or clean energies. I like that better than alternative. Mm-hmm. And also then uh, reducing your heat losses, your waste heat that comes out of windows and buildings and tailpipes and inefficiencies. There's a whole lot we can do with that, mm-hmm. uh, and so it's like cleaner, cleaner air, quieter seas, um and a better environment by reducing the, the the kind of human byproducts, the the kind of waste stream is is, is where really what I'm, Oh, a lot of people are pushing, but mm-hmm. I think the historical analysis can help support that. Yeah, is the, is the,
0: uh, I'm not quite sure how to ask this question, but um. I've read a little bit about these uh, macro engineering or geo engineering projects, but mm-hmm. it's mostly been in a context or a frame that indicated that they were very many years and zillions of dollars from realization or even serious consideration. Can you speak to that? Are they seriously being considered by people in the administration or in industry?
1: Well, here, I'll just tell you my last. <laughs> I'm teaching two seminars. They're, all, they're both on Monday and Tuesday because the rest of each week I'm gone. I'm, I'm traveling. I was down in Washington D.C. Uh, and spoke at the Woodrow Wilson Center. The next day at the AAAS, and then the third day, a meeting with the, the Government Accountability Office to who's studying geoengineering. Uh, the next uh, after that, I went to the National Academies where the. Government University Industry Research Roundtable was meeting on this very topic, and the topic at hand was crash program in research and possible deployment of geoengineering, and uh, two of us, there was one uh, sort of ethical climate modeler and myself argued, basically, uh, keep it indoors, make computer models, Uh, you could do some laboratory testing under controlled conditions. But uh, the, I guess the buzzword was keep it indoors between consenting adults. <laughs> and, and there's another group that says, well, let's let's do some modeling for about three years. Then we'll go outside and we'll blow off some sulfate cannons or we'll try some technique. The question is, if you go outdoors, you're getting into kind of like the release of recombinant DNA to the environment. Are you getting... You're bringing the public in immediately when you're tinkering with the outdoor environment without any real hope of a verification of your experiments. The nature is so variable, and our observing systems are so poor, and the results would be mixed at best. Uh, that we're we're at we're not advocating a deployment at all, although others are. And then a, a, a more radical fringe group wants to go to the third step, which is a which is an implementation program, a sort of a Thirty thousand Chinese artillerists but spread worldwide with their with their stratospheric rockets in in the ready in case the climate falls off a cliff somehow. So they have scenarios of climate emergencies. Of uh, I don't know how they would define that and how everybody could agree on a climate emergency, but they're ready within the next decade to have something in place. and And I, I don't think there's much chance of getting that. I, I don't. I, my goal had been, and and again, this is the second big theme of the book, beside tragic comedy. The, the second big theme was bringing history into conversation with policymakers, not to tell them what to do, but to tell them what had been done. Kind of a, I tried to be relevant, you know, in the 21st century. And so I brought some historical lessons and dropped them in their at their feet and argued that they should take these seriously. as sort of a, one of my talks was called "What Counts as Knowledge," you know. The, because so nobody reads history in this group, they mm-hmm. and, and so another one of them, <laughs> I, I, I once said that uh, everything's an unprecedented challenge if you don't read history, <laughs> and they're yeah. just coming at it as technocrats and bureaucrats, yeah. some very highly educated and influential people. Like uh, you know, I don't know if I can name names on your program, but I feel like Larry Summers was in the audience and pontificating about stuff and how. Geoengineering might like, be cheaper than carbon mitigation or so, things like that that the economists like, was Bill Nordhaus at Yale uh, uh, used to believe. I don't know where he stands right now. But anyway, uh, it's, it's 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 for the last two years or so, it's been sort of a lone historian hoping that mm-hmm. we could get a little bit of traction at the policy table, but being surrounded by largely people who don't know history but know a lot about techniques and and uh, the budget process and things. and so, uh, But I do think that the public and the un- when people first hear about this, I think they like the, the social message more than the sweet technological message. They, and if you read any blogs about geoengineering, just look down below at the comments. The general public thinks this is pretty much nuts. Mm-hmm. They think it's playing with playing God with Mother Nature and mm-hmm. stuff like that you 'll get some popular comments like that, mm-hmm. and you can find a, a lists of these techniques in ev- any discover magazine or yeah that 's popular where, mechanics that 's where
0: i've read them yeah,
1: yeah but you won 't find much historical analysis except if maybe well i 'm starting to get mentioned a little bit since the book is out
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, uh, and and there 's i, I don 't know of too many other people that are working on this. We have a tough time calling ourselves a community of historians. Mm-hmm. Uh, But we do have community uh, looking at uh, atmospheric issues together. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, you may know that this show is sponsored in part by the National History Center and they are involved in trying to do exactly what you're doing, that is to get historians' voices heard in the corridors of power. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Have you had the opportunity to talk to politicians? You've mentioned some policymakers. Uh, You mentioned you go to Washington.
1: I I was down for two years. Uh, I had a I had a uh, leave of absence to be at the National Air and Space Museum Smithsonian where I actually worked on, I, my proposal called for bringing air to the Air and Space Museum rather than air <laughs> rather than airplanes or spacecraft I said both of these uh, technologies have to fly through the air and in, in the case of space you have to leave your pollutants behind as the, as the shuttle goes up into the outer space right you leave your stuff in the stratosphere so I came in kind of as a historian of atmospheric events, and it was really a wonderful year that led to long-term collaborations. We have a we have a new book series that came out of that with Palgrave uh, Macmillan Studies on History of Science and Technology, and it's just been a great collaboration with the curators at Smithsonian. And then I moved. I had a AAAS fellowship with the uh, it was called the Revel Fellowship in. Uh, it's called global stewardship. So I took it to the Wilson Center, where I got this notion of bringing history to the to the policy table, but not trying to tell the policy people what to do, just informing them of what had been. And, and so uh, I, I then uh, 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 Miriam, what's her? I forget her last name, but at the History Center, got me involved in giving a talk up at one of the. Uh, one of the Senate office buildings where the staffers and the AHA people came over and some of my uh, AAAS fellows filled the audience. And I gave a, I gave a history of knowledge about uh, climate change, global warming from 1800 to, uh, from no, from 1730 to uh, to the present kind of thing, of, of steps that we've taken to understand the atmosphere, especially with climate change. So I did one National History Center talk down there, and then I've just been, like like the, the, my, my friends at Wilson said, "Just keep hammering away. I had, <laughs> I had a, a like a two thousand word thing in slate last two weeks ago, uh-huh. which was on geoengineering, and I testified to Bart Gordon's House Committee on Science and Technology about the dangers of not reading history mm-hmm. in this field, and uh, you know, I've just been in different venues, uh, the White House Council on uh, Sustainability. Called me yesterday, and they want me down November second, but I'm teaching a seminar, so uh-huh. I think I'll just answer their questions and mail it to them. Yeah. But it's it's a, it's really you know it's it's an exhilarating. I'm just a small college professor with a, a strong technical background, and then wrote a bunch of history books, and uh, I find that I'm i mean I'm sort of in these circles where there's people from uh, MIT and Stanford and blankly blank and NASA. Yeah. And, and then Colby, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. We have 1,800 students and 180 faculty, and I teach. Uh, I have two seminars running right now, and and I really love that teaching. But yeah. the second half of each week, I'm off. I'm yeah. going somewhere tomorrow. Yeah. Well,
0: I mean, I'm glad to hear that you're able to get the word out about all of this. It's a heartening story for uh, any of us who... Uh, hope to speak to people in power about what we do. I know that, you know, in my own case, I did Russian studies for a long time, so uh, I made, I think, a very modest contribution in that way. I like uh-huh. to say that I helped end the Cold War. I'm not sure if that's hey, true. cool. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but, I, you know, I really think that's terrific, and I'm, I'm very um, – I, I find it very gratifying that you're able to do all that. And But uh, there was
1: a conversation about four or five years ago. My colleagues were saying, well, why do you want to deal with these people? Why would you want to be relevant? be careful the The presentism might strike back and change your historical perspective and and i i I think you know we had some very interesting conversations at different conferences about the what is the role of the historian and should we just leave the the story where the archives drop us off twenty five or fifty years ago or And and I decided, no, I I would bring my story close to the present using the best techniques I knew and and then articulate, I guess, with the public policy people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a sense in which all study is historical because everything is already behind us the minute we (laughs) see it. At least that's what I tell my students. So I I don't make a strong distinction between any of these things, and I don't even – think that I have a field anymore, I just call myself a historian. So, Right. Uh, yeah. So. Well, I had, a
1: gr- I had a great visit to the uh, University of Iowa, which led me to some new topics that I might be working on coming out of this book. I just barely mentioned them in the book, but... Mm-hmm. Well, we'll be
0: happy to have you back um, anytime you want to come, okay? Just, you,
1: have, you have the James Van Allen papers, and... Uh, yes, we do. That's right. I was deeply involved in them in a cold January uh, <laughs> visit. Just this year. So I'm writing a I'm actually writing a paper for the Annals of Iowa on, on the Space Age comes to Iowa from Van Allen's point of view. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, um, Jim,
0: I want to say thank you very much for being on the show. We've taken up a lot of your time. You've been very generous with it, and I want to thank
1: you again. Um, it's been a delight. It's almost like sitting at a conference and talking with another colleague. Yeah,
0: it is. And I think the I people, like the format. Yeah, people who listen to the show, I think they really they, they really get the same same sense of it. It's just a kind of conversation uh, between two people, one of whom knows a lot, and the other of whom, that no, being no, me, no. wants to know a which lot. Is so, which is which? Yeah. yeah, well, yeah. Uh, so let me ask you to uh, uh, answer our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is: What is your next project? You just mentioned writing something for the Annals of Iowa, but do you have a book project or something like that you'd like to talk about?
1: Okay, uh, I I don't think the Allen will turn into a book, but it'll be a new interpretation of what I call discovering and disrupting the magnetosphere on the same day. In 1958, he decided to blow up his eponymous Van Allen belts with the military. And that's a good story to tell. Uh, The longer book is going to be something like, and I don't want to make this overly progressive, but it's something like the emergence of the interdisciplinary atmospheric sciences coming out of older meteorological traditions of forecasting in the early 20th century. I have a protagonist named Harry Wexler, who was head of research at the Weather Bureau. And Harry brought weather radar and uh, instrumented aircraft and rockets flights into the uh, near space. And he was the chief scientist for TYRO satellite and also the, uh, the, the the right-hand man of Johnny e. von Neumann on digital America weather predictions. So Harry was are the cutting edge of all these new techniques that came together to form the interdisciplinary atmospheric sciences and so i guess you know i'm just wild about harry and and what he does for me is he allows me to write cold war history without all the acronyms of nsf and nas and, and all these aec things because uh... because wexler was on all these committees and so i can use partially biographical i don't want to rely only on him but he 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 flourished from uh, 1936 to died in 62, and he was the architect of this thing still in existence called the World Weather Watch, which brings all the satellites and all the nations of the world together in a kind of a world meteorological sense. And so I think by telling the story of the rise of emergence, I guess, of atmospheric science, you're telling a, uh, a complex story but using some... Uh, some biographical channels to get the word across.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like a fascinating project, and I wish you luck on it. And let me express my appreciation again for being on the show and for writing the book. We've been talking to uh, James Roger Fleming today about his new work, Fixing the Sky The Checkered History of Weather and Climate Control. Jim, thanks very much for being on the show.
1: Well, thanks, Marshall.
0: Okay, all right, bye bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with James Roger Fleming about his new book, Fixing the Sky. Checkered History of Weather and Climate Control. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.